Open up your Bible with me to Luke chapter 4. That's where we're at this morning. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. Um, It's been fun, um, especially with the way everything has been tying into this Christmas season and then get to have our New Year's Eve, our our New Year's, uh, our Christmas Eve service together and um, just going back through the Christmas story and uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Now, as we continue on, we really get into the nitty gritty. Um, we get into the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ. And so, as we read on, we're going to pick back up in um, uh, verse fourteen. But before we do so, guys, let's pray for our time together. And um, this morning, as we pray uh, for one of the churches in our community, um, I want to pray for the Nazarene Church. Um, up on the, the north end of town by Harrison. I'm not aware of the pastor there. Does anybody know who that might be? I know that we're connected to that fellowship through the Worldview Academy as a, a lot of the people that go to that congregation are also connected to the Worldview Academy out at the Abbey. And, um, uh, of course, the Abbey students help um, minister with us at the Bridge Youth Center. So um, we have brothers and sisters there in the Lord who love Jesus and have a heart for the people in our community. So let's pray for the word and the study and also pray for the, the Nazarene church up there. Lord, we thank you, God, so much for this time together this morning, Lord. We ask that you would bless it. Father, I confess my need for you, our need for you, Lord. Lord, to be able to teach us and for us to be able to understand Lord, you tell us that um, the natural man cannot understand spiritual things. But God, you placed your spirit in us. And by that, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we can understand these things that are so necessary for life. For spiritual life, for physical life, for um, eternal life. So I pray, God, that you would have your will in our hearts and minds this morning. God, that we would be encouraged, that we would be blessed. And we pray the same thing for our brothers and sisters in the north side of town. Lord, at the Nazarene Church, who love you, who serve you, who want to know you more. Pray for their pastor and ask God that you would bless them. We pray, God, that you would give him wisdom, Lord, that he would teach truth. And Lord, as his spirit comes upon, as your spirit comes upon him today, Lord, that he would rely upon the work that you want to do in and through him. And I ask God the same thing for myself. Lord, that I would rely upon you. And I would not rest in my own strength and my own understanding. For you alone, Lord, have the words of eternal life. And we desire to hear and know about those things today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you haven't been here with us, last week we made it through the first 13 verses of this chapter, and we read about the 40 days that Jesus had spent in the wilderness after leading the Jordan, after leaving the Jordan River and where he was baptized by John the Baptist. And, and while he was in the wilderness, we read about the temptations that the devil, that, uh, that from the devil that Jesus faced while he was there. And in the remaining verses of this chapter, Luke accounts some of the key things that took place early in Jesus' ministry, and, and, and begins at a time when Jesus had returned to Galilee. And Luke's going to highlight on some things, and he's going to leave some things out that the other Gospels talk about, and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, um, I'm going I'm to mention and go over some of those things, but we need to keep in mind that in this particular passage, in these verses that we're going through, actually chapter that we, or the beginning of the verses we read last week, and then, then really into chapter 5, the overall um, thing that Luke is wanting us to get is that Jesus is the son of God. That's, that's what Luke is really trying to convey to us by the things that happen, by, by what Jesus spoke and taught, um, by what God the Father and the Holy Spirit and all these things working together is we need to come away from this with the understanding that Jesus is the son of God. That's the message. That's the foundational message. And from that, we see some really cool things. Now, it's important to note that when you read through, like I just kind of mentioned earlier, the other gospel accounts, you'll realize that there are some events that, that uh, took place directly after uh, the, the 40 days uh, uh, that Jesus was in the wilderness and before the time when he returned to the Galilee region, which we read about here in verse 14, there's things that Luke does not write about. And, and, and they're important and they're significant. They're just not um, uh, 
they're not categorically important in regards to the message that Luke is bringing forth right now to us. And so, so he sets them apart. And, 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 and just for our own understanding, when we look at the other Gospels and what they tell us, because I want to keep a chronological order of events for us as we go forward too. And in doing so, I'll point out that it appears that, that nearly the whole first year of Jesus' ministry is not accounted for by Luke. However, this gap of time and the events that took place, they are recorded with the most detail in the Gospel of John. And, and so I want to I go over those briefly this morning, because in the beginning of John, specifically starting in John chapter 1, verse 19, and then going on through John chapter 4, verse 45, we're told that after Jesus was baptized and declared by John the Baptist to be the Messiah, that, that John says that the people started to follow after Jesus, and many became his disciples. And, 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 and we see in that the fulfillment of John the Baptist's ministry. And when Jesus comes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's like, go follow him. This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. In traveling with these disciples through this first year, Jesus went from the Judean wilderness first to a city of Canaan, which, which is in the Galilee region. And if you remember, this is where Jesus performed his first miracle by turning the water into wine, the six stone pots of, of, of water into wine during the wedding feast that was going on. Then Jesus and his disciples, were told by John, made their way from Canaan um, down to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover feast. This was the first time that Jesus had gone there in this time of ministry during this period of, of proclaiming the, the acceptable year of the Lord. We're going to talk about that as well. And at that time, Jesus, uh, Jesus' disciples saw him. There's two times that this took place, one at the end of Jesus' ministry and one at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But when he entered in the temple, we know that he overturned the money changers' tables and he drove those out who were doing business in the temple with a whip of cords that he, has made, that he had made. His disciples saw this take place. But after leaving Jerusalem, it says that Jesus went back to the land of Judea in the, in the Jordan River area with his disciples where he spent some time there teaching and baptizing those who had been following him, his disciples. Now while Jesus was in Judea, we're told by John that his popularity grew. So much so that, that those who were following him, the, the number of disciples that had, been, that had come to follow him, were even greater than those disciples who had gathered and were following John the Baptist previously. And, and, and this was significant because the news of this became known to the Pharisees who had been publicly challenged by Jesus and even humiliated um, when he was in Jerusalem. And knowing that these religious leaders were aware of his growing popularity, Jesus left Judea and returned to Galilee, where we read it out now. And this is where he traveled around the Sea of Galilee and through the cities that were near its shores. And he taught, we're told, the multitudes that followed him about the kingdom of God. But when Jesus was on his way back to Galilee, we know, um, and, and, and I love this part because he makes time for the individual is what we see in this, in this, in this uh, account in the Gospel of John. We're told that on his way back to Galilee that Jesus made this slight detour to the city of Sychar, which was in Samaria. And in there, he had an interesting conversation with one woman at a well. He had a conversation about water, about water that can spring up inside a person and give them everlasting life. I would encourage you to go read that story in John if you don't know about it. It's a cool thing. Now, all of these things are just a brief summary of the times of the time and in the events that took place in the first year of Jesus. And, and one of the reasons I went through this is because they fit here for us in Luke chapter 4, really between verses 13 and 14. Everything that I just went over fits in between verses 13 and 14. And in verse 14, if you'll read with me there or follow along, Luke continues to tell us about the life and the ministry of Jesus and says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the news of him went throughout all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Let's stop there. 
And he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. That's a pretty powerful phrase, and I want to go over that a little bit as we go through these first two verses. But like I already said, John's gospel tells us that Jesus had had previously been in Galilee, right? The city of Canaan. And at that time, Jesus attended a wedding feast where he performed his first miracle by turning the water into wine. But upon now his return to Galilee, we read here at this time that he went through the entire region, not to just one city, he went through the entire region. And in doing so, his mission or his ministry was to teach in the synagogues. Now, I was sharing this with another couple this weekend as I, we spent some time with some friends and, and, and I'd been reading and studying. And I found this very interesting when I began to research the region of Galilee, especially after having been there and, and seen some things. And so I can picture it in my mind. I want to try to try to picture it for you if you, if you have a map or if you know what um, the nation of Israel kind of looks like. But Galilee is in the northernmost part of, of Israel, and it stretches, if you can imagine in your mind, all the way from the Mediterranean Sea um, on the, uh, well, that would be the, is that the, the west? The west? Yes. All the way from the west in the Mediterranean Sea, all the way to the east side of the country, uh, to the border of Syria. And, and it's, it's below the, 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 the Golan Heights, where Mount Hermon is at, and, and, and um, goes down uh, where the southern border of Lebanon is, and it goes down to the Valley of Jezreel, which is also the Valley of Medjugo, where the Battle of Armageddon will be held. And this region still is and was, in Jesus' day, a very fertile and highly populated region. In fact, when I was doing some research, I, I found out that um, the Jewish historian Josephus, many of you heard about, that he, he was actually a governor, the governor over Galilee at one point of that, of that region. And, and, and in the, um, in, um, Josephus, is, he, 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 he writes and he wrote about the, the, the region of Galilee. He says that at that time, the time when Christ was there, the time when Josephus was there, um, there were 240 villages and cities in the, in the region of Galilee. And he says that each had a population of, a, of, of at least 15,000 people. And that blew my mind because when you begin to think about, when you read the Bible and you begin to think about these stories and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the journeys that Christ had through the region of Galilee, which was the majority of, his, of where his ministry took place. I don't know about you, but I, I, I find myself thinking that it was very sparse and spread out and maybe uh, you know, a few hundred people would gather here or even a few thousand. But when you do the math that Josephus gives us in this small region, in the Galilee region, what we come conclude is that there was at this time approximately 3.6 million people in this region that Jesus was able to reach, that Jesus was able to teach. But guys, that's pretty cool. But the more important thing um, for us to take note of um, in these first two verses is that we're told that when Jesus returned to Galilee at this time, to this region, that it was, it says here, in the power of the Holy Spirit. He returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. And and when we place this statement in the context, as Luke does for us, I think intentionally here, um, having left some things out, but again, fulfilling his purpose of proclaiming Jesus to be the Son of God, when we place this statement in the context of the 40 days of temptation that we read about in the the first 13 verses um, that Jesus endured, now at a time when he was led, or, or excuse me, at that time also when he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, I think it's evident that Luke wants us to see that Jesus was strengthened by the Holy Spirit during this, during this time. Listen, strengthened by the Holy Spirit during this time as a result of experiencing victory over the devil's temptations. And, and I don't know about you, but that happens in my own life. When I have victory over sin, victory over Satan's temptation, there's a strengthening in my life. And in light of this, we should understand that when we, and and granted, guys, understand this is through the grace of God. This is the work that God does in us. That when we, through the grace of God, resist and overcome temptation, we're always bettered by it. Even though we don't like to go through those times of testing, those times of suffering, those those kinds of of temptation, um, 
which can be very difficult and trying. Obviously, for Christ, the, 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 um, the, the imagery and the example is that that often feels like we're in a time of wilderness experience. But even in that, what we see is we're bettered by it. In other words, the very things that the devil has designed for our ruin are the very things that God uses as instruments for our good. And I think when we remember that in those times when we're feeling discouraged or even defeated or we're in a time of battle, a time of trial, we can keep our eyes on the fact that God's doing a good thing. He's strengthening us. And it's worth pointing out that, that this is the third time that Luke mentions Jesus now, even in just this short amount of time that we've been studying through, it's the third time that Luke mentions that um, uh, Jesus has this connection to the Holy Spirit. The first was back in chapter 3, verse 22, when we are told that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in bodily form, the time of his baptism. The second was the beginning of chapter 4 here in verse 1, where it tells us that, that Jesus was led into the wilderness, that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And here, for the third time, again, we're told about Jesus' connection or relation to the Holy Spirit when it says that Jesus returned to Galilee now in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I draw our attention to this because a very cool thing being revealed to us. And the cool thing about this is that we, you and I, who have put our faith in Jesus and, and now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, right? The cool thing about this is that we have the same kind of connection to the Holy Spirit that we see here with Jesus. In fact, Jesus taught his disciples about this, and he said that when the Holy Spirit would come, he would be the one, number one, to guide us in this life and to lead us into all truth. That's one of our connections to the Holy Spirit. He would guide us in this life and lead us into all truth. Furthermore, Jesus promised that God would send the Holy Spirit to come upon a believer and to fill us with power. That he would come upon us and fill us with power from on high so that we might be equipped to do the ministry of God while we're here on this earth. On this earth. And the power that we're filled with is the same. This is mind-blowing. It's the same power that Jesus was filled with and strengthened with when he came here into Galilee. You and I have access to the same strengthening, the same power through the Holy Spirit that Jesus utilized while he was here on the earth and ministering. Now this Greek word, as you may know, is the Greek word for, for uh, uh, um, power. This power that we're talking about is the word dunamis. And from this word we get our word dynamic. And this Dunamis power, this, this, this type of power, really describes the supernatural power of God that has, I love this, explosive results. And when we see the initial response Jesus received as a result of this power flowing through his life, we see as we read on that it was explosive. And it brought forth at this time a positive result. And in light of this, we see that Jesus' popularity was growing. The people were following wherever he wanted, wherever he wanted. They wanted him to teach them, and as we read here in verse 15, they were glorifying him. You know what that means? That literally means that everywhere Jesus went with the people, that they were giving him praise and honor. They were giving him praise and honor. However, we know this was not always the case. And the fact of the matter is, is that not all people are going to respond in a positive way to the explosive power of God when they experience it flowing through the life of a believer as there will be some who will respond in a negative way. And I'm sure you've all experienced both of that, whether it's the positive response or the negative response as the result of the power of God in us and through us in this world that we live in. And a way a person responds, really, guys, it boils down to whether or not they're willing to be led as the Holy Spirit works through us, as they're willing to be led into the light of the truth or whether they remain in this place of darkness and unbelief. It's a choice they have to make. So we should expect that as God leads us, as God empowers us with the power of the Holy Spirit to do 
his work here of telling people the truth really about Jesus and the gospel message, that there will be some who will respond in a positive way and others who will respond in a negative way. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he said it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Listen, he said, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph, who always leads us literally in victory in Christ. And through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. That's not very, that doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? Especially if you've ever been around roadkill. To some people, you smell like roadkill. Hopefully, spiritually speaking. And to the other, listen, this is the awesome thing. To the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Now, even though Jesus was initially being glorified, as we read here in verse 15, by all who were in Galilee, we see that when he came into Nazareth, a village, one of these villages in Galilee, his hometown, we see that he received this different response. And in verse 16 it says, And so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his, as, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the, the sight of the blind, to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And so then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So verse 22, all bore witness to him and marveled. This is pretty cool, but maybe not in a way that we think. You might underline it. It says, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, right? And when we hear that, we might go, yeah, we love to hear the gracious words of Jesus. Mercy, forgiveness, restoration, healing, right? But listen, it says, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to him, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have done, whatever we have we have heard done in Capernaum, do also in your country. And then he said, surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. So all of those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. Wow, the gracious words of Jesus caused them at this moment to be filled with with wrath. And so they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they may throw him down over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Stop there. Now, one of the things, let's give you a little remember, this is the Bible overall is a Jewish book. It was written to the Gentiles, the early church as well, but there's, there's, 
a huge Jewish element that takes place. And when we understand some of the Jewish cultures and customs, it helps to understand, open our understanding to some certain things. And so with that, I want to bring to your attention that one of the things that Luke doesn't tells us about or tell us about here is that according to Jewish tradition, Jesus would have been invited to come and teach at the synagogues. It wasn't like you could just walk in and stand up and go, okay, I'm going to start teaching you guys. They had, they had a rabbi and they had elders and, and the, the position of teaching was sacred. And, and there were people who would visit and travel along, other rabbis, teachers, whom would be invited in. And, and, and it had to be an invitation. And so the, the natural assumption in this situation is that wherever Jesus went, because his popularity was green, the, growing, the people were following him, he was teaching them wherever they were going, is that he'd come into the villages in response to an invitation. Come to my village. Come to my synagogue. Please teach. And so when we read about Jesus coming to Nazareth and teaching in their synagogue, it was because he had been asked to come. And furthermore, he was going back to his hometown, right? And because of this, and, and so his hometown, keep that, keep that understanding in your mind. That's where his family was at, his brothers, his sisters, half-brothers and sisters, as we know, his friends, those he grew up with, his neighbors, his extended family. And he'd been asked to come. And because the synagogue was in Nazareth, um, Jesus, having grown up here, would have attended it before, right? And now he would read and teach in his home, own home synagogue. And as was the custom of all Jewish teachers, this is how it would work, culturally speaking, is that Jesus would stand up, he would read from the scriptures, and then after he had finished reading, he would sit back down with everybody gathered around in order to explain, to expound upon what he had just read to them. Now, the passage of scripture that Jesus read, you probably know, this is from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And that passage of scripture, as we see it being revealed here in the New Testament by Christ, exposes that it's a messianic prophecy, meaning it was a prophecy that told what the Messiah would do when he came, and everyone who was in that room listening, these good Jewish people, understood exactly what it meant. They knew this was a messianic prophecy that spoke of the Messiah, but Jesus had done something when he was reading from the, the, the from when he was reading from the prophet Isaiah, that really perplexed them. And so when Jesus sat down, we're told that their eyes were all on them, on him, as he as they as they waited for Jesus to explain himself. Okay, we know what this is about. In 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 and now in front of your eyes, this is being fulfilled to you, you're telling us. So so explain it. And they were, they were on the edge of their seats waiting for Jesus to explain. Now, if you want, you can. You don't have to. But if you turn over to Isaiah chapter 61 and you read verses 1 and 2, this passage that Jesus wrote, read from, you'll notice that he, stops, he stopped in the middle of the sentence, in the middle of the thought, really at a comma, not a period, when he ended his readings with the words, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And in doing so, Jesus did not read the next line, and if you're there, you'll see it, the next line that speaks about God's vengeance. And I don't know about you, but I am grateful for that. And we can all be glad that he didn't read that last verse as he explained the reason for the Messiah coming and who he was. Will there come a day when Jesus will return to execute righteous judgment upon the earth? Yes, but at that common, at that comma at the, in the book of Isaiah, there, there has been at the end to proclaim the acceptable day of the Lord, the comma, and then to speaking about the vengeance of God, that one comma, prophetically speaking, up to this point has fulfilled a space of time of 2,000 years. The time that we're living in, the time that we're waiting for Christ to return, where he'll bring forth God's vengeance, the judgment of God here upon the earth. 
Right now, we live in the time that the Bible refers to an age of grace where God's salvation, where he's proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord, where he's fulfilling these prophecies that he has spoken about, the Holy Spirit has come upon him to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set free those who are captives, to heal the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's what God's been doing during this time that you and I are now living in. And in light of this, there's a couple of things that needed to be pointed out of these things that Jesus spoke about and, and, and in light of this passage of Isaiah. And um, the first one is, is that the one speaking in Isaiah passage, the one that is speaking here in the context, it is the anointed one. The one that is speaking here in the context of what the prophet wrote is the Messiah, the Christ. And the anointed one that, that he speaks of, this, this anointed one in, 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 the, in the first person kind of sense as he's speaking about himself, he, he, he speaks of him being anointed. And in the Old Testament, you know this, like that, that, that in the Old Testament, when someone was anointed like a king or a prophet or even a priest, that they were anointed with oil. And typically the oil was poured out liberally upon the person's head and it was allowed to flow down upon them. And the application of this oil was a picture. It was intended to be a picture or a sign of the Holy Spirit being poured on upon, their, upon a person's life to be able to equip them, to empower them for the service that they were called to. It was an outward representation of the real spiritual work that was going on inside of them that God wanted ultimately to do through them. That's what the anointing represented. So in regards to the Messiah who was called to do a special service for the Lord, we see from the words that Jesus went on to read after, after saying the anointed one, the one who has been sent, we see that he came to heal. He came to heal the five-fold damage that sin brings into our lives, into our world. Because sin does great damage, there must first be a great work of redemption, right? That's what the salvation of God does. It brings forth redemption. Redemption to the damage that sin has done. And so the Messiah came to preach the gospel, literally to bring the good news, a good news message, first it says, to the poor. And, and this is speaking about a, 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 a spiritual uh, bankruptcy to those who are spiritually bankrupt, the good news message. And this is the first step in the healing process. This is the first step of God's plan of redemption. And in doing so, it reminds us, it reminds us, guys, that sin makes a person poor. Yes, it can make you literally poor too. I was, I've been there and done that. But it, it, it more so makes you spiritually poor. Sin does. Yet, guys, Jesus, who is full of grace, Jesus, who is full of mercy, the anointed one, he came to pay the spiritual debts that we owe. That's what the Bible teaches us. And in doing so, to impart to us his spiritual righteousness. Removing our spiritual debt and filling up our spiritual bank account with good things. But sin does more than make us poor, as Jesus went on, as we see that sin also, and man, I know this, and you guys know this too, and maybe you're even here this morning still, still suffering for some of these things, but, but sin does more than make us poor, as it also breaks, it breaks hearts. Sin breaks hearts. And yet Jesus tells us such good news. Jesus tells us that he's been sent to heal the brokenhearted. Another passage of scripture that tells us that God's also near to those who are of a broken heart. He heals the brokenhearted. In light of this, we see that God's plan of redemption includes restoration. That's awesome. God's plan of redemption includes restoration in where Jesus is able to heal our broken hearts and restore back to us that which our sin has taken and destroyed. As a matter of fact, in another passage of the book of Isaiah, and it tells us this prophetical statement that Jesus, the Messiah, gives God, can give beauty for ashes. He takes ashes, burnt up wreckage, brokenheartedness, and he gives beauty. He says he gives the oil for the joy 
the oil of joy for, for mourning and a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So the healing of our broken hearts that God brings is also good news, but there is more as Jesus also says that he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. You know why? Because sin puts people in bondage. Sin makes people captive. It doesn't just put them in bondage, it enslaves them. Sin enslaves us. Think about that picture of being a slave. Not just being locked up, but being enslaved. And the Messiah has been sent to set us free. And he does so, the Bible tells us, by putting his Holy Spirit in us. And in doing so, we, by the power of God, are strengthened. We, by the power of God, are enabled to live free from those things that we were in bondage to. And I don't know about you, but I remember oh so well those days in my life where I was doing things as a way of life that I utterly hated about myself. And I couldn't stop. I couldn't find a way to be free. I wanted to be free. I tried all kinds of things, but yet I kept coming back to that which enslaved me, to an oppressive master of sin. And God enables us, he strengthened us to live free from those things that we were in bondage to. And one of the ways that this is done is, guys, is, is because we read here in this next part is that it's because he heals he, he, he is done, one of the ways that this is done, one of the ways that we're set free is by, by having our blindness healed, right? By healing our blindness and restoring to us our sight. And in the context that I'm speaking about, specifically our spiritual and moral blindness, because sin blinds us. It sears our conscience, that ability to, to even regulate between what is right and what is wrong, But through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God has put his commands, it teaches us, as one of the prophetic promises in the book of Joel and in the book of Jeremiah. It tells us that God has put his commands and his laws into our heart, inside of us. And in doing so, he, through the Spirit, this new nature that we've received, he illuminates the way in which we shall now go. The path of righteousness, which simply means the right way of doing things, the right way to go. He heals our blindness. Now, listen, the last of the five steps here in God's plan of redemption, right, is to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's a powerful word, oppression. It, it, it may have lost some of its meaning in the world that we live in today because there's a lot of snowflakes out there who proclaim to be oppressed by this and that and the other thing. Just saying. This is not oppression. <laughs> when you look at the context of, of true oppression, and most often in the world that we live in, it's, on, it's upon those who are unable to defend themselves. And injustice is the result of it. And when you go across the world, when you've traveled across the world, and you've gone to foreign countries, and it happens here as well, but typically that type of oppression where these injustices come to people who cannot protect or defend themselves, it's to women and children. If you get that kind of picture in regards to oppression, it's taking advantage of those who are weak. And it says that Jesus, in our weakness, where we're oppressed, is that he comes to set us free, to liberate those who are oppressed. And, and, and this is due to the fact that sin oppresses its victims. It steals your hope. It brings forth depression. It takes away life. And the Messiah comes to bring liberty to the oppressed comes to bring justice and thankfully Jesus did not come only to preach deliverance to only preach deliverance or even to the or even to bring deliverance Jesus came listen let me say that again thankfully Jesus did not come to only preach about deliverance or to even bring deliverance but Jesus came to be deliverance for us Now, the fact of the matter is, is when Jesus closed the book, is that not good news? Is that not gracious words? And he says, he says to them when he sat down, and all the eyes are fixed on him, he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
And when Jesus closed the book and said this, the implications would have been obvious to all who were in the room. And in that moment, there would have been no doubts in the minds who have heard it about what Jesus had said or that he had just claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, who could bring forth the kingdom of God that had been promised to them, to the Jewish people, down through Abraham and down through Moses and down through Isaac and Jacob and and all the other forefathers. But this was only part of his claim. Because by not reading the next line, guys, which spoke of God's vengeance, Jesus was claiming, listen, Jesus was claiming that as God's Messiah, he had been sent to save and not to judge. And that's why we can say today, for there is now, for now, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. He came to save and not to judge. He came to heal the brokenhearted, to free those who were in bondage and oppressed, and to open the eyes of those who cannot see. And as any of us might imagine, this news was shocking to those who, in the, who were in the room who had been waiting for this, who had just heard these claims that Jesus had made about himself. Because in short, Jesus was saying to them, I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting for. I am he. But contrary, listen, this is the second part of it, but contrary, he's saying to them, Contrary to what you have expected, I've not come to execute judgment on your enemies. And that's what the people of Israel were looking for. They were looking for this political deliverer, this king to rise up to deliver them from their enemies and to execute judgment on those who had oppressed them. Instead, he said, I've come to save you and them. You, He says to the nation of Israel, and them, your enemies, I've come to save you and them from the judgment of God that is to come. Needless to say, the crowd was fascinated by his teaching, and Luke tells us in verse 20 that the eyes of everyone who was in the synagogue was fixed on him. In fact, verse 22 tells us, it says that all who bore witness to what had just taken place, they marveled over the gracious words that have proceeded out of Jesus' mouth. Now, When we read that they marveled at the gracious words spoken by Jesus, we can see that it was not a good kind of marveling by their reaction afterwards, was it? In fact, we see by the question they ask at the end of verse 22, with this, there's tons of implication behind it when they said, is this not Joseph's son? That wasn't a compliment, And by that, we see that they were marveling over the words that Jesus had spoken because they did not believe what Jesus had just said. I know you. You're not the Messiah. You're Joseph's son. As a matter of fact, when you go back to your birth and your mother being conceived, uh, you know, by the whole power of the Holy Spirit and, and Joseph running off with her, you know, there's all these things, societally and culturally speaking, that are playing into this very moment with that one statement. And in their estimation of things, at the very least, Jesus was no greater than them. As a matter of fact, Jesus, in one sense, in their perspective, was less. After all, he was from Nazareth, and his father was Joseph, whom they also knew was from Nazareth. And so they they chose, ultimately in that moment, by that one statement, not to believe or receive or accept this good news. Sad. But the deeper issue that drove their unwillingness, listen, Really, guys, and this is the root of all of this kind of stuff going on. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Why do people do this? Reject this good news. And here's the reason why, when we look at theirs. Because the deeper issue that drove their unwillingness to believe what Jesus had just said was the fact, uh, believe what Jesus just said was the fact that Jesus' words were gracious. How dare he make this claim to be their savior and not speak about the vengeance of God coming down on their enemies? And in their minds, they alone were the brokenhearted. They alone were the captive and oppressed. They alone believed that God would send a savior who would deliver them by bringing forth the wrath of God on those who had been oppressing them. So when Jesus spoke only gracious words, words of God's salvation, they understood that he was claiming this. They understood that he was claiming that the Gentiles, who were their enemies, whom they hated, were also included in God's plan of salvation. Amen. 
And this was not okay with them since they were the sons of Abraham. They were God's special chosen people. However, Jesus' response to them in the verses that follow not only supported the words of truth that Jesus had spoken, it, here's the key, it, and here's the reason why people resist the gracious words of God, because when Jesus spoke these additional truths as he went on, you know what it did? It revealed their self-righteousness. I don't need a savior. I may need a deliverer from those who oppress me, but as far as my sin, my unrighteousness, it's covered. It's taken care of. And and it was their self-righteousness that exposed, that Jesus exposed, which was the real reason for their unbelief. And in verses 25 and 26, look here, Jesus, he reminds them of an event, first of all, that's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 17, okay? An Old Testament account. And in this account, God, through the prophet Elijah, demonstrated a miraculous act of God's grace to a Gentile widow, that's who Jesus refers to, is a Gentile, a widow, by supernaturally providing flour and oil for her when there was a famine throughout the land. That's the, 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 the cliff note version of the story that Jesus is referring them to. And as good Jewish people, they knew this account. They knew the prophet Elijah. They knew what had taken place. And in light of this, Jesus' example pointed out that even though there were many widows in Israel in that day, at that time, who were in need of God's grace, only a Gentile who trusted in God had received it. And, and not, God wasn't saying the, excluding the Jews from the, the Gentiles or the Gentiles from the Jew. He was just pointing out the fact, the fact that they were, of what they were resisting is that, that God loves the Gentile people. And this good news is for them and for the Gentiles that God didn't come to, to condemn the world but to save the world. The second example that Jesus, Jesus reminded of them was this event recorded in 2 Kings chapter 5. And in this account, God, through the prophet of Elisha, healed a man by the name of Naaman. Now, Naaman wasn't just any ordinary man. Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army, an enemy of Israel, the commander of the army. And yet God still healed him, Jesus says here. He healed him of leprosy. Why? Because he obeyed with humility. You know the story. It took him a little while to get there. Sometimes it takes a little while for us to get there before we're, go, we're willing to wash in the dirty waters that Christ says go to, that we perceive as polluted, where God says this is where life is at. And so when he obeyed with humility, and he, he, he was surrendering his pride to the word of God that had come through the prophet. The word of God. Jesus is the word. Do we surrender our pride that has come through the prophet to him and be healed, to be made clean, to be washed? In light of this example, Jesus again pointed out that even though there were many lepers in Israel who needed to be cleansed, God chose to demonstrate his grace to a Gentile. Not just a Gentile, but to a person who was willing to trust in him. Guys, we're going to end with this of Justin and, oh man, I wish we could go on next week. So if the worship team wants to come up. Guys, both of these examples supported the words of truth that Jesus had spoke about being the Messiah, okay? Both of those examples supported the words of truth that we just went through about Jesus being the Messiah who had been anointed and sent by God to save the world and to not condemn it. However, when they were confronted with these examples, they did not see the error of their ways and accept the truth. In fact, according to verse 28, it says they were filled with wrath and actually tried to kill Jesus by throwing him down a cliff. But we see that it was not time for Jesus to die, so he escaped miraculously, passing through the midst of them, and then he went his way. Listen, this morning the message is is this. We're all in need of a Savior. And what, what God has done by sending his son Jesus Christ is what each of us need every day. And that message tells us that we're no good on our own apart from him. That we're filthy, naked, wretched, blind, spiritually speaking. But God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to give us everything that we need, life and life abundantly.
And we all have this same opportunity to how we're going to respond. Are we going to be angry and upset by the gracious words of Jesus that point out our need for a Savior? Or are we going to surrender our pride, our self-righteousness, and lay ourselves down humbly before the Savior and accept the truth and receive the gift that he's given us of salvation through his own death, making the payment for the debt that we owed for our sin. God has called each one of us to that place, and many of us have responded, but if you're here this morning and you've not yet done that, today's your day. Today's your day to receive these gracious words of God and to become, as Justin said earlier, a son or a daughter and to receive life, to receive forgiveness of sin, to receive the assurance that when this life is over, you'll go to be in heaven because of the work that God has done for you, because of his gracious and forgiving and merciful way. And here, the salvation that God offers us isn't just for eternity, it's for now. Eternity begins now. The salvation of God begins today. He wants to heal your broken heart. He wants to restore the things that have been lost to you. He wants to set you free. He wants to put his laws and his ways in your heart and give you the power to walk in newness of life. But you gotta step forward in faith and humble obedience and take the gift that he has for you. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord to us, the acceptable year, and to tell us that we've been accepted by you through your son Jesus, through the anointed one, through the Messiah. God, it's so awesome to be able to study your word and see even more and, and focus once again on the depth of your great love for us and what you have freely offered to us through your son. Father, fill our hearts with gratitude so that we also, Lord, may glorify you and praise you wherever we go, giving you honor. Lord, I lift up any person here this morning who may not know you yet, who once again has heard of you and of your great love for them. And I pray, God, that they would reach out to you in their hearts and in their minds today and make that decision to receive what you have, to put their faith in your son, Jesus. And I pray, God, that they would let someone know if they've done that. That they would confess that they're a sinner in need like we all are. And recognize, God, that you alone have the words of eternal life. Lord, as we worship you now,